have you here this morning. And, uh, I, I've commented each week that you guys are the guinea pigs in terms of the audiovisual stuff that we have uh, going on. We, our second service goes real smooth, you know, we get everything sorted out, the people in the back know what's going on, it's... Uh, but uh, we appreciate your, your patience anytime there's a little hitch there. So we uh, have been working through this series on the I am statements of Jesus. I appreciate Charles reading the, from John chapter 11. It is a, a long chapter. Uh, there is a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, some of you, no doubt, have attended a, a ladies' day or... Um, just heard a, a Bible class series where you'll look at this chapter and examine Mary and, and talk for 45 minutes about Mary or 45 minutes about Martha and, and her response. And, and we're going to try and just cover the whole chapter today in less than 45 minutes. And, um, and, and we're just going to deal with I am the resurrection and life, just a simple sort of concept there that we'll... Uh, um, get through fairly quickly or not really scratch the surface at all. Have you heard what happened to Lazarus? Have you heard about that? He was a friend of, of Jesus and he died. I, I don't know what his illness was. Um, I, I don't know how it happened, but as soon as he got sick, Mary and Martha sent for Jesus and they said, you need to, need to come quickly. Some of us have got calls like that from loved ones. Some of us have got calls like that from, from doctors or, or, or medical uh, staff. You need to come. But Jesus didn't hurry. He stayed where he was. And when he does come to the family a couple of days later, the, the, the sisters are confused. Jesus, why didn't you hurry? We, we told you that he was sick. Why'd you stay? Well, what's going on? Jesus explains in, in a couple of places in this passage that this was a moment meant for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. You've got to think about that for a little while, right? Um, this is a moment. Lazarus being sick, Lazarus dying, Jesus knowing he's getting towards the end of his life, all these things coming together in terms of timing. And he says, this is a moment for God to be glorified and for his son also to be glorified through it. And you go, well, that seems kind of extreme. Like, when you were teaching about the gate and being the gate, you just talked about a theoretical gate and a theoretical shepherd and a theoretical sheep. All right, it was a nice story. No one was harmed in the making of that illustration. But this is Lazarus whom you love and you let him die so that you could be glorified. That seems kind of self-centered egotistical i don't know what the what the word is there it's confusing to say the least but 
Jesus then approaches the tomb, speaks to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. And he does. Now, I don't know if Lazarus spent the rest of his life holding a grudge against Jesus for letting him die the first time or just being so happy that he was resurrected that none of that mattered. Maybe different personalities would handle that differently. But I would think that being alive again is going to overwhelm whatever discomfort came from dying the first time. But how would, how would you respond if you were one of the bystanders? Would it feel like Jesus had been playing cruel tricks on you, sending you on this emotional roller coaster ride? The hope that he would come, the, the devastation when he doesn't, the joy when he shows up, the confusion of why he's there now, and then just, the, well, all that emotional grief and energy that I just spent was for nothing because now he's alive again. Was that some sort of cruel manipulation? Or would you be convinced that this Jesus is the Messiah? This is the evidence that we've been, you know, we haven't seen before. I mean, one other time he raised someone from the dead, but for these people here, it was probably the first time most of them had seen anything like this. Would witnessing this change your life? Would it not just convince you of who Jesus was, but would it actually make you do something different in your life from that point forward? It may surprise you, but for some people there, they decided that this event proved beyond a doubt that he was a threat to law and order. And the threat needed to be eliminated. And they started planning his death. How would you respond to these events? There's so much going on in this story, but in the middle of all of this chaos, as Lazarus' sister Martha confronts him, and if you have your Bible there, you can keep it open to John 11. We're going to look at different verses in this chapter and staying right there. But, but she's upset that Jesus has delayed his coming. And she says to him, if only, if only. Don't we have so many of those thoughts? And we'll talk about that a little bit in growth groups this week. But Jesus, if only you'd done this. My life would be better. If only. But even as she is feeling this remorse, this regret, this confusion, she expresses this tremendous faith in verse 22. She says, You could have come. You could have come and you could have healed him. I've seen you heal him. That's in the range, the sphere of things that you do. That's acceptable. That, that makes sense even, as, if, as much as miracles make sense. But then she says, here I am. He's dead. And rather than giving up in verse 22, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. That to me is remarkable. She's just complained that Jesus could have come and could have saved her brother's life. In the next breath, she says, but even now, I know that you can talk to God and he will do whatever you ask him to do. I, I think that's, that's a profound example of faith. 
And then Jesus and Martha have this little exchange, and he says, well, do you believe, you know, you've, you've just said that, do you have faith in me? He'll come alive again. And she goes, oh, I know he'll come alive at the resurrection at the end of time. And, and he goes, no, I'm not talking about that. He can come alive earlier than that. Which really, I don't, you know, the, so when's he going to come alive? There's this back and forth. And then Jesus says, makes this statement. In verse 25, this, this uh, verse is both our text for today, but it's the central point, I think, to this, uh, to this story. And that is, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Here is our fifth I am statement of this series. Jesus changes the conversation he's having with Martha from talking about a resurrection event to talking about a resurrection person. And I think that's a bit confusing because what does it mean for a resurrection to be a person? Most of us can only sort of picture that as an event. Jesus, in fact, at this point hasn't died. How can he be the resurrection if he hasn't died? Um, that's a bit of a puzzle also. But he seems to be telling Martha that he represents the resurrection. That Jesus has come, if you will, from the future. He's traveled through time from the future to the present. He's already been to the resurrection, where the resurrection people are, where the resurrection life is lived, and he has traveled back in time to be able to say to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I represent that. I'm living it for you. I can help you to experience it. And I want just to pause for a moment here because Martha, I, I want to think, compare this I am statement to other I am statements. Most of them were delivered to large groups of people as Jesus was teaching. But for this one, Jesus, there may have been a crowd, but he's having a conversation with one woman who's lost the brother that she loves. And as she's there with all her grief, with all her, uh, her thoughts in turmoil, not knowing what her future life is going to be like at one of the darkest days in her life, Jesus comes to her and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Very individual to say, I have the solution to your problem. I know and can address your pain. And so, Jesus, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, because it's who he is, he's able to raise Lazarus from the dead because he is the resurrection. Think about Lazarus for a moment. Lazarus comes to life having been dead for, well, now on the fourth day. Lazarus could 
lived the rest of his life, however long that was, and he could say, I was raised from the dead. But that didn't give him any ability to raise anyone else from the dead. Didn't even give him the ability to heal anyone else. It just meant that he was alive. Jesus, on the other hand, because he is the resurrection, is able to pass that on to others. And so what we see lived out in Lazarus gives us some confidence that his words are true when he says that even uh, whoever believes in me, even though um, they die, uh, will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He can make those promises because he is the resurrection. The previous four I am's. I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate and the good shepherd. Each of those had other applications towards Jesus' character or other attributes or behaviors beyond uh, just the claim that Jesus was divine. But when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, that's a very specific focus. I am is a claim to Godship. I am the name of God. The resurrection and life really can only mean a promise for eternity. A promise to, to confront death, to, to fight against that and to be victorious. A promise for an eternity worth living for in the present. And so as we, we think on this statement of I am the resurrection and the life, and it, it, it's a difficult statement to get our heads around, I think, to, to explain clearly. But it's one of unimaginable identity, of unimaginable power. And so we have this picture of Jesus as this all-powerful resurrector, um, foe of death, defeater of death, bringing Lazarus back. Nothing can stand in his way. Kind of how you would expect a Messiah to be presented, particularly a Messiah that has just crossed the Jordan and is moving toward Jerusalem. And then in verse 35, we're brought back to earth, as we're told, very simply, Jesus wept. If you're ever... This verse is perhaps best known as being the answer to the trivia question. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? But confronted by the fallenness, sin and decay of the world, experiencing the loss of someone he loved, empathizing with his friends who just lost their brother. In the midst of all of this, Jesus And just as he's made this bold statement about his divinity, now his humanity is on full display. But you know, there's another way of looking 
at Jesus as he weeps. Maybe it's not his humanity that's on display. Jesus has just made this statement that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is God, that that nothing can overcome and defeat him, that he will be victorious against the greatest of enemies. And then as he weeps, I wonder if it's perhaps his divinity on display as much as his humanity. And maybe we, have, maybe we struggle with that picture to think that the God of the universe, the creator of everything that we know and of all that we don't know, could be outside this tomb in, in, in ancient, uh, just outside Jerusalem, in ancient times, weeping. And there's different theories, different reasons for why he would be weeping. But he is experiencing sadness. The sadness that comes with death. The sadness that comes with uncertainty. The sadness that comes with unbelief and with the absence of hope. He's experiencing the sadness of his friends and empathizing with them. And so as, this, as Mary and Martha weep, as the crowds come and support them, and as they weep and mourn as they travel to the tomb, the God Almighty on heaven is there in the form of a man, and the God of heaven cries with those who cry. Because Jesus weeps. And I believe that that same God cries with us in our hurt, in our brokenness, in our regret, in our guilt, in our own troubles. Because the God who is I am doesn't change. He's just present with us. And so as we see Jesus weeping there, I think we see one of the great um, images of history, of God in the flesh weeping with his creation. And I think that's a powerful image that we need to to remember that Jesus, although he is the resurrection and the life, is still impacted, still feels the pain that comes with death. And perhaps that that energizes him. Perhaps that drives him to the cross to to defeat death for the final time. Perhaps what he experiences in this moment is what motivates him to, to make a difference, to change history for all time through what lies ahead for him amongst everything else. The God weeps with us. And there's another thread that runs through this passage. The first thread is the the thread of identity, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The second thread, though, involves our response. If you have your Bibles there, you can look in verses 25 and 26 again. Jesus' first words there as he engages with Martha uh, to tell her, I am the resurrection and the life. And then... His last words are to say, do you 
believe this. You believe this. The word believe has different meanings, different uh, nuances, I guess. It's used in different ways. But the way it's used in, in verses 25 and 26 is to say, believe in Jesus, believe in me. It means to trust in Jesus. And so this meaning, trust in Jesus, is never used. The word believe is never used in that way in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's used 126 times in the whole New Testament that way. Exactly half of them occur in the Gospel of John. Just in this chapter, if you go through and count, maybe it changes depending what your translation is, but the word believe shows up eight times in this chapter. And so what that tells us is that the John, in his writing, to have this believe in Jesus... 63 times in his gospel, is that it's important, it's a theme, it's something that he's emphasizing as he writes. And we certainly see that here in this exchange. Do you believe this? Martha, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Well, you might think that's the question, but it's not. That's not what he's asking. The question isn't, do you believe that I am a factual person and that Lazarus is really risen from the dead? The question to Martha is, do you believe in me? I am the resurrection and life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they'll die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So when we believe in Jesus, we, we're going to face, we're going to experience a physical death. But there's a different kind of life that Jesus offers when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. There's something eternal there that he's offering, that he's promising, that he's talking about. But it comes by believing in him. And so there is a difference between believing what he says and what he does and who he is and believing in him. And that's an important distinction for us to realize. Believing in Jesus not just means more than just saying, yes, I've seen Jesus raise Lazarus. I believe he can do that. I believe Jesus could walk through a hospital and boom, 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 heal people. I believe that. When we believe in Jesus, now our lives are going to change. It means trusting Him for our new life. It means that our life is different because we believe in Him. In verse 45, we, the epilogue to this story really um, gives us a contrast between Martha, who clearly believes Jesus and believes in Jesus, and the, the alternative reaction. Here we see verse 45 summarizes Lazarus' return to life by observing that many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary 
and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Remember back at the start how Jesus said, this is happening so that God may be glorified and that the Son of God may receive glory? Well, that's happening. After he raises Lazarus from the dead, people are like, whoa, this is amazing. And it says there, there are of the crowds of people that come out from Jerusalem, of those that were there, it says they believe in him. They say, we need to pay attention to this. We need to, to follow him. But then in verse 53, we read there that of a different consequence. The Jewish Sanhedrin in Jerusalem hears of the the raising from the dead and is getting nervous that Jesus would cause problems for the Roman rulers. Jesus had mostly conducted his ministry in Galilee. Now as he comes closer to Jerusalem, perhaps it becomes more of a threat. Perhaps the Romans will not just punish Jesus if he causes problems, but make life difficult for all Jews in the city of Jerusalem. And so from that day on, in verse 53, we're told they plotted to take his life. Now, they didn't dispute the facts about Jesus. They didn't say, oh, no, Lazarus isn't really dead, uh, isn't really alive. They didn't try and say, oh, Lazarus was just asleep. Oh, Laz it was an elaborate trick. Oh, Lazarus was just you know, under a fever and in the cold of the tomb he came alive. There was none of that. They accept that Lazarus was dead and is now alive. But because of that, they say we need to kill Jesus. Don't think that following Jesus is easy. <laughs> it's not. But this is really our question for today. If you're here today, you probably believe something about Jesus. But let me ask this question. Do you believe Jesus or do you believe in Jesus? We've read Jesus' promise that the one who believes in me will live. Even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Matthew 16, verse 25, sort of because that's a difficult sentence to, to uh, follow there, I think, at times. Matthew 16, 25 expresses this paradox using different words. He says, Jesus says there, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So, in order to gain the eternity, the resurrection, the life that Jesus is promising. We have to be willing to give up something of our own in the present. And this means that we may miss out on things that we value or enjoy. Sometimes it means making difficult choices, choosing harder paths. But we do so convinced that it's the right thing to do that it's the godly thing to do and ultimately the best thing to do. That the best thing to do is not always the easy thing to do. But in return, Jesus promises resurrection and life. 
So I have one final thought for you. I think this talk of dying, of receiving life, of, it's strange and, and somewhat uncomfortable. But I want to illustrate it by the example of Jesus himself in this story. You see, before Jesus came to see Lazarus' family, he stayed two days on the other side of the Jordan. And then he says, okay, we'll go now. And his disciples, who at first had been surprised that he stayed there, they now say, well, hang on, Jesus. Hang on. A short while ago, in verse 8, the Jews there in the Jerusalem area of Jerusalem, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you are going back. The disciples weren't dummies. I know sometimes we read scripture and we think, oh, they're dummies. Why don't they understand? But they're not dummies. They know that if you go to a place and the people there try to kill you, and then you go away for a couple of weeks, and then you return to that place, the people there probably still are going to not like you. And so they're asking, Jesus, are you sure you want to go back to Jerusalem? Jesus, uh, we see, sorry, we see this in, in verse 16 again. And, and I wish we had the tone of voice for um, how Thomas makes his statement. I like the way Charles read it. Charles read it with determination. Okay? That, that Thomas says, Okay, guys, let us go that we may die with him. Answering the battle call. It was a good reading. Maybe it's my personality. I tend to see Thomas as more cynical. All right, guys, come on. I guess we're going to go and die with him. You can take your pick as to how you think Thomas would express that. But what we have is Jesus saying, I'm over on this side of the Jordan where it's safe. If you were to read the end of chapter 10, you'll see the people there are believing in him. His ministry seems to be going well. But when he says, I'm going to go to Bethany, he heads in a direction that leads through Bethany. We're told about a couple of miles further we'll get you to Jerusalem. And just outside Jerusalem is the hill of Golgotha where he will die. Jesus began that trajectory because he loved Mary, because he loved Martha, because he loved Lazarus. He gave life to Lazarus, knowing that ultimately it would cost him his. It reminds me of our passage from last week, that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That Jesus headed towards danger for the sake of his sheep. And his disciples followed. So how about you? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that Jesus is your resurrection and your life? Do you believe that that is something 
worth pursuing and worth living for in the present. And so if you find Jesus' love and sacrifice compelling, if you want to accept his promised resurrection and life, Romans 6 tells us that we join ourselves to his death and resurrection through baptism. That, that in baptism we, we die and to, to self and then we are raised to Christ. So I encourage you, have that conversation. Embrace your baptism that you've, you've had in the past and say that was, was more than just an obedience. That was a connecting, a joining with Christ and experiencing in the very smallest of ways, perhaps physically, the very smallest of ways and experiencing of the resurrection. And it started me on a new life. And as I continue to follow Jesus, knowing that there'll be times that my journey takes me through Bethany to Jerusalem, that I will experience the resurrection and the life because Jesus always goes ahead of me. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.